Pornography. It's an uncomfortable topic, but it's also a massive problem that has a crippling grip on millions of Christian men, men who feel ashamed of their addiction, yet powerless to break free. But what if shame doesn't have to define us? And what if God's power is at hand to deliver us? Today I'm talking with Pastor Ray Ortland about how the truth that we are royalty, created in God's image for a great and noble purpose, has the power to free us from the dehumanizing lies of the porn industry. Ray serves as pastor to pastors at Emmanuel Church Nashville and is the author of The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Ray, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. I'm glad to be with you, Matt. So right at the beginning of your new book, you write, thanks for picking up this book. I hope it helps. I hope it changes things, a lot of things. But I think right away, uh, I can imagine that someone might be listening, a guy might be listening right now, thinking to himself, yeah, right. I wish things could change, but I've read the books, I've gone to the seminars, I've listened to the sermons, I've tried meeting with an accountability partner, I've tried all of that stuff, and it feels like nothing has helped, nothing will change. We're going to get into some of this stuff, but I wonder, what would you say to that guy listening right now here at the beginning of our conversation? I would say to that guy, everyone on the face of the earth understands exactly what he's talking about. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave of sin. I understand that. Uh, One of the things I say early in the book is that I am a sexual sinner. I'm not looking at porn. I love my wife. I don't have a girlfriend on the side, but I am a sexual sinner. Mm. If everybody above puberty is a sexual sinner, so we really are in this together. The guy who says that to me is speaking to a friend. Mm-hmm. I'm that guy's ally. I understand what he's talking about. He understands me. We are in this together. Um, I wrote this book because I am so fed up with Christian men being scolded, shamed, pressured, cornered, belittled, as if that would help them, as if that would change them. Well, because a lot of people would would say that that's what they need. They need a kick in the pants, grow up, act like a man, a a godly man. And that's the problem is they haven't been uh, challenged to to be mature and exercise self-control, say. Right. Where does the Bible teach us pastors to challenge people? Okay, I understand there's some sense in which I can use the English word challenge legitimately Mm -hmm. as a pastor. But I'm thinking of Isaiah 40, verse 1. It does not say, challenge, challenge my people, says your God. It says, comfort, comfort my people. I believe we don't change until we feel understood, until the comforts of the gospel start trickling down into the deepest, darkest places inside us. Mm. Uh, Our our inner reality is like a neighborhood, and there's some really bad places in that neighborhood. 
And sometimes we go there. And it never works. It never helps us. But we keep going back there at mm. times. You know, the only difference between me and you, Matt, I don't know how old you are, but... 33. Okay. I'm 71. <laughs> the only uh, significant difference between us is that I've sinned a whole lot more than you have. Mm. I have been trying God's patience since 1949, for crying out loud, <laughs> and he has never forsaken me. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I wrote this book because I want more men to know and to feel that there is an alternative to what they're stuck in, but they're going to get into that alternative not by bucking up, but by getting with other men of God who are facing the same issues they're facing and together going to a place of honesty, vulnerability, transparency. I don't use the word accountability. I don't like that word mm. because that word, I, the way I've heard some people use it, it, it sounds, it's a way of, um, uh, it's pushy and bossy and coercive. I don't like that. No one helps is helped that way. But transparency is different. Then we all share that together. I remember one evening in the men's ministry at Emmanuel Church years ago, Matt, I don't know how I had the nerve to do this, and I'm, I'm not recommending it. <laughs> <laughs> but that evening, that Tuesday evening, with maybe 30 guys in the room, Somehow, I felt that we were at a threshold, mm -hmm. the way so many guys are. So many guys, Matt, are closer to a breakthrough than they think. Anyway, there we were. And I felt like, okay, guys, let's do this. Let's do this. Why don't we break up in twos and turn to the guy next to you and tell him, disclose to him, trust him enough to tell him the worst thing you've ever done. And then he will pray for you. Then turn it around. He will own up to and disclose to you the worst thing he's ever done, and you pray for him. Could that work, fellas? And they said, sure, to my amazement. So, yeah, so there wasn't, there wasn't this uh, uncomfortable silence as you asked that. No, of course, there was a backstory, and we'd, we'd taken a lot of incremental mm, steps to yeah. get to that place. You where... weren't just dropping this on the first first guy's mm -hmm. gathering of the no, church. No, no, no. So, and, and again, to my amazement, they said, cool, good idea. So mm. we did that. We walked in that morning, uh, that evening, as acquaintances, and we walked out that evening as friends, mm. and we never went back. So I'm wondering, you know, what could God do with a whole generation of men. And I wrote this for my son's generation. I, I wrote this for guys in their 20s and 30s. Mm. I feel like I owe those guys. My generation in the late 60s and early 70s, we went crazy. We went insane sexually. And we handed a mess down to you guys. So I owe you something better. Mm. And you guys can pass on to your children something better. We let you down. You don't have to let your kids down. Mm. And so I want to help you with generational impact through this book. Yeah. And, and that the first step is honesty with, with brothers in Christ whom we trust. When we start to own up to and talking to with transparency what isn't working in our lives, what isn't going well, how we're not, how we're, we're not even satisfying ourselves, much less pleasing the Lord. Mm. 
Um, how, how did we get here with that that issue, though? You know, as Christians, the gospel is foundational. None of us would deny that, and the gospel very clearly teaches that we are broken, that we are sinful, that we can't save ourselves, that we need. The fundamental is repentance and confession, and yet it seems like that often is not characteristic of our experience of the church. We go to church, we get involved in different uh, facets of church life, and we feel the need to put up a facade, to, to keep those things hidden. What's going on? How are we so uh, misaligned with the reality of the gospel? That's a great way to put it. Here's my answer. I believe that gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Take the doctrine of, of sin, for example. That should, it's actually calculated to create a, a culture of honesty and transparency and humility and uh, putting right out on the table our sins because Christ has paid for our sins. Um, what's happened in the last 20 years or so, I'm, I'm so grateful for the Lord's work in our nation. We have, we have uh, Together for the Gospel, we have the Gospel Coalition, Acts 29, and so forth. These are fantastic streams of blessing flowing into our nation. And uh, this whole generation, we've, we've taken a step up in terms of theological understanding, theological articulation. We're excited about doctrine. That is very positive, right? But we have not, along with that, grown with the gospel culture that those very doctrines are calculated to create. Mm. We've grown theologically by leaps and bounds. We have not grown relationally to the same extent. That's our next step, Matt. Mm. So it, what you're talking about is common. We, we go into ch a church that loves the gospel, preaches the gospel, savors the gospel, sings the gospel. And in that environment, we feel reluctant to talk about what is hard in our lives and how we're not doing well. That's crazy. Mm. So I'm, I'm a man on the mission. I want to see that changed. Yeah. Well, and your church models that well. Uh, there's a little creed or something, I don't know what you would call it, that sort of you guys uh, recite together as a church, I think on a maybe a weekly or at least a regular basis. Can you share that? Yeah, yeah the Emmanuel mantra. Yeah, we, we wouldn't put it up at the level of a creed. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the right word. But yeah, the Emmanuel mantra goes like this. One, I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, Anyone can get in on this. Mm. So what, what's behind that? Because there's a certain uh, uh, familiar and uh, non-intense feel to that, even that simple little mantra. And I, I assume that's intentional. You, you want it to not feel like this uh, super heady, weighty type of thing to say. So, so explain, what, what was the, the goal behind that? And how did that even get formulated? I don't really remember how it unfolded, but... It just popped up along the way because in a theologically intentional church, it's, it's easy to miscommunicate mm. to people when they come into that kind of church. Yeah. It's easy for them to feel like we're bearing down on them, yeah. and they better come up with the you, right answers. You better get the doctrines 
yeah. precisely defined. And so the manual mantra is a way of not stepping on that landmine, not inadvertently communicating mm. what we don't intend. It's mm. a way of saying we take Jesus seriously and his gospel. We don't take ourselves seriously. We're, we're not good at this, mm. and we want to own that right up front. In fact, we start every service uh, on Sunday with um, a call to worship that we <laughs> we stole from uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Uh, I found it on their website years ago. <laughs> and just and just copied it. Oh, yeah. We, we pirated this. <laughs> um, and it's very simple. It goes like this. I stand there or wh- whoever the pastor is, and here's what the first thing people encounter in a worship service at Emmanuel Church. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort to all who fail and desire strength and to all who sin and need a savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the friend of sinners. Mm. Now, um, in, in Nashville, Tennessee, where we are still, there, there are remnants of sort of a Bible Belt mentality. Yeah. People come into church expecting a pep talk, expecting uh, a message of do better, try harder, pedal faster. Mm. And so what we want to say from the first time we open, the moment we open our mouths is, this is not like that. We're here to serve you. We're here by God's grace to reoxygenate you. We're here to lift you up. Mm. We are in this together. None of us is good at Christianity. So. Let's go to a place of honesty and transparency and vulnerability together, and let's discover together what Jesus can do for people like us. Mm, that's so good. And it kind of connects even to another thing that you say in your book. It's kind of a running theme that is, I would say, pretty foundational for what you're trying to say, and, and that is uh, that what the book is actually aimed at doing is helping the readers finally dare to believe that they're true royalty. And you talk about how men are royalty, women are royalty, and Jesus is royalty and how that all matters for us. Why is that royalty idea so important to this? Why is that so foundational? Well, because it's literally foundational in the gospel and in the Bible. Um, In Genesis chapter one, (laughs) from the get-go, God looks us right in the eyes And he tells us, I created you in my image. Now, to be an image of God, to, so to speak, image God means to represent him. He is the king. He created us in his image. Gerhard von Rad, in his uh, commentary on Genesis, points out, in the ancient world, the king over a vast and mighty empire would put up statues or images of himself in those parts of his empire that he didn't as often visit to remind everybody Mm. that he was the king. And that's the background to Genesis 1 and our being created in the image of God. We, the word image is used elsewhere in the Old Testament for a statue. So we're here to, to, to be living, breathing emblems of the king of the universe. We are to think like him, 
love like him, be wise like him, uh, express uh, uh, and, and bring his kingdom to bear in this world. He did not create us to grovel. He created us to stand tall with a spring in our step and sparkle in our eye and steel in our spine and bring his glorious kingdom into this world that needs God. So there is nothing about our existence that we have to settle for as second rate. Uh, that is not of God. Uh, everything, there is nothing in Jesus we need to brace ourselves against or filter out or just accept. Everything about him that he brings to us is uplifting and dignifying and empowering. And he gives us our lives back, gives us greatness of purpose. Mm. Almost nobody believes that, Matt. Yeah. Sometimes I don't believe it. It strikes me as that's the, the image of God is one of those things that if you've been a Christian for a while, we, we check that box. We know that doctrine, but maybe we don't always understand how it actually matters for how I live my life, how I think about myself. Exactly. And that doctrine, the image of God, creates a culture of respect and honor and dignity among us, even in our failings and shortcomings. For example, uh, Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. Well, where does that come from? It comes from Romans chapter 8, them he glorified. The, the, the beginning of the gospel is our royalty in God's image. And the, the touchdown of the gospel is our glorification in resurrection uh, royalty. Mm. Well, that makes a difference right now in establishing among brothers in Christ like us who have problems, we have issues, we have failings. Still, it establishes, it demands a culture of honor. And so Romans 12 says, here, here's what that looks like. Outdo one another in showing honor. So as far as I, I know, Matt, that's the only competition called for in the Bible. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet everybody wins. So if, if you and I were in a, a small group of men, uh, here's how we would roll. There would be two things going on primarily. One, we would confess our sins to one another. Two, we would outdo one another in showing honor. Mm. Uh, I've ex I, I really didn't know how real this is and how life-giving this is and how re-oxygenating this is until I experienced it with guys. And I just believe if, if that goes viral in your generation, it will have impact not only in your generation, but into future generations mm. as well. Mm. I'm not, in this book, Matt, I'm not talking about tweaking this uh, or modifying that, a little touch up here and there. I'm talking about a paradigm shift where a whole generation of men deeply feel, I've got my life back. Hmm. And they've got energy that they didn't know existed. They've got companionship and brotherhood they didn't know was real. They ha are able to risk uh, and have the courage for confession they've never dared before. Yeah. And, and the Holy Spirit is in that with you, power. You talk a lot about wanting to, uh, to see a movement, uh, spark a movement, spark almost a revolution uh, among, 
among people in our country and around the world. And at one point in the book, you actually compare the fight against pornography in our world today to William Wilberforce and his fight against the slave trade in the 18th century. Is the issue of porn really on par with that example? Oh, absolutely. And I am so hacked off that online porn kind of is so widely accepted mm-hmm. as as just the way it is and w- w- nothing around here ever changes and we don't like it but there it is well matt in the 18th century and 19th century that's exactly how so many people felt about racialized slavery mm-hmm. nobody liked it but but so many people accepted it and many people benefited from it huge benefits economic benefits. There were strong incentives and well-positioned people to make sure nothing would ever change. Mm. And then some men of God said, by his grace, for his glory, this is going to change. I was, I was years ago, Matt, so moved when I, I read a letter from uh, John Wesley. I talk about this in the book. From John Wesley, it was the last letter he ever wrote. Two weeks later, he died. In 1791, he wrote a letter to William Wilberforce, the young politician in Britain, and urged him to devote his life to bringing down the slave trade in the British Empire. Mm. And he he told him honestly, you know, both powerful, well-positioned people and demonic forces will be against you, but God will be with you and you will prevail. And Wilberforce received that. And with others in his uh, circles, um, they devoted their lives to uh, 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 the effort of marginalizing, stigmatizing, and limiting the slave trade. And they won. It took years. It took years. But they won. Mm. And now today, slavery is unthinkable to us. Well. We need that same paradigm shift to occur now in our culture with regard to porn because it is slavery. It is oppression. Porn is a justice issue just as much as slavery. We will never, as men of God, we will never make peace with injustice. We will never participate in it. We will never support it. We will never look the other way. Hmm. And so I'm calling your generation to come together and link arms to form a new movement for justice in this very delicate personal area Mm. of our sexuality. What would you say to the person who who questions whether or not it should be called a justice issue? Because uh, they might say that unlike the the slave trade uh, of the 18th century, uh, the people who participate in the porn industry are doing willingly, and maybe they're even being paid. Uh, This is is something that is a choice uh, that isn't actually hurting anyone. But, Matt, I would say it simply isn't true. My own eyes were opened when uh, I had a significant conversation with a friend of mine, uh, a, a very brave friend who, whom I quote. She tells her story in mm. this book. She was abused as a child, trafficked as a young woman, went into the sex industry, worked in the clubs and so forth. And she explained to me, there's what woman ever grows up thinking, I would love to give my prime years 
to being mistreated on porn sites and then viewed by millions of men around the world on their laptops who derive secret guilty pleasure from my abuse. Who ever signs up for that? Mm. It is not voluntary. Everything she said, everything going on behind the scenes. The porn industry, of course, wants to make it look like it's just innocent fun. They have every reason to make it look that way. And so I, I, Tara sort of pulls the curtain aside and, and, and helps us all see what's really going on behind the scenes. Mm. And, and I, I think chapter two in the book, She is Royalty, might be, for me, it's, it's the most powerful chapter in the book because it, it redignifies every woman uh, with a glory that God has in fact put upon her and the porn industry strips that glory off of her, degrades her, treats her uh, like trash. And God is profoundly offended by that. Mm-hmm. And we need to step around and stand with the living God as advocates on behalf of women and make sure that that mistreatment stops for crying out loud. Mm, yeah. Well, and zooming out a little bit beyond even the issue of individualized use of pornography in our society, there is this broader conversation, uh, and maybe a better word for it is even a reckoning uh, in our culture today related to the ways that men have often used their power to take advantage of, to mistreat, to abuse women. Uh, And some people, it seems, even some Christians would seem to suggest that a contributing factor to that is are some of these traditional ideas about masculinity. Uh, You mentioned chivalry and um, ideas of headship, that those are actually part of the problem. They're streams that that funnel into this abuse uh, that men often uh, perpetuate against women. You seem to say, though, that some of those uh, quote-unquote traditional ideas, biblical ideas about men's unique role in all of this to protect women, uh, to be a noble influence in our society are, are, are actually key to the solution. So how would you respond to people who, who question that and think that those things actually oftentimes are part of the problem? Yeah, I would agree with them. But the caricature of manhood that they rightly object to is not taught in the Bible. Mm. If we want to know what a real man looks like, we look at Jesus. And everyone was safe in his presence. Matt, that's our goal as men, that we would have such integrity, that we would be so deeply unselfish, that we would be so respectful and so considerate and so for others that everyone around us, especially the vulnerable, would be, compl- and, would be and would feel completely safe. Mm. That's our goal. And a distortion, a caricature of biblical manhood uh, is I, I, am, I am the ally of anyone who opposes the distortion of that. And I'm, I'm on their side. So let's, there is so much that's got to be changed. Mm. Matt, there is nothing God has given us that we haven't corrupted mm. and distorted. Yeah. We all need to go back to Jesus. So coming back to the issue of porn in particular, uh, you say that the battle that men 
and women increasingly face when it comes to porn is not actually about porn or sex or willpower, but about hope. Unpack that. Our real problem is it's not glandular. It's not the testosterone flowing through us. It's not our sexuality. Matt, I believe every man's sexuality, every woman's sexuality is magnificent. It is sacred. It is of God. It is inviolable. The problem is not our sexuality, but when we stop believing that God cares about us, that God is looking out for us, that God has our back, that God has a future for us better than anything we could cook up for ourselves. And when we stop believing that and we feel like I've got to make my own way, I have to force things to break my way and so forth, that's when we start stepping on one another, Mm -hmm. mistreating one another. That's when we start looking at one another through a lens of cost-benefit calculation. And maybe through that lens, a woman might be exploitable if I have sufficient incentive to go there. The whole thing is evil because we have forgotten God. When we see ourselves as created by God, loved by God, watched over moment by moment by God, we can finally calm down, relax, and start treating each other with respect, dignity, consideration. Um, And especially, Matt, in this very delicate, very personal area of sexuality, our violations of one another are extremely painful. Mm. Yeah. But if we would just back up and see everything as a God issue, my sexuality is a God issue. It's not about sex. And it, when my heart feels hopeful in God, my sexuality stops being predatory and starts becoming a little more Christ-like mm. and unselfish. You say at one point in the book that every time you log into a porn site, what you're really looking for is Jesus. Uh, And to some, that might sound almost blasphemous. They might wonder, what in the world does that mean? Uh, How is that true? Everything we most long for in our deepest intentions is found in Christ. John's gospel is very clear in chapter 1. Life is in Christ. So whether it's sexual sin or any kind of compromise, betrayal, Mm. a crossing of the line, whatever it is we're looking for that we're willing to sin to get, we're reaching to grab something. We're forcing our way through. We're saying to God, would you please look the other way for a few minutes? Whenever we do that, we're actually turning away from the one who has everything we desire Mm. and toward bitterness, disillusion, disappointment, and despair. What is it in your experience then in talking with guys and even assessing your own heart, what is it that that guys are desiring when they they look to porn that, that 
that actually can't satisfy? What is that underlying uh, desire that they have there? Oh, I think we have so many reasons, ranging from you know a temporary thrill to feeling like a man, uh, to some brief false comfort, or even Matt, just a mere compulsion. Um, we all we all it, here's the, here's the problem with defining it. It's crazy. Hmm. It How? doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. Crazy defies definition and understanding. We there's a there's an insanity in sexual sin. It cannot cannot possibly work out. Why do we keep doing this? Mm. Well, so that then raises a, a, another question I wanted to get into a little bit. We as Christians, we have the Bible's teaching on sexuality and, and what God designs for our sexuality. We have the Holy Spirit within us, empowering us for obedience. Um, but even with those two things, uh, as we've already established, many, many Christians struggle repeatedly with, with addictions in these fronts. And one question is, how much should we look to even the insights of our culture's uh, understanding of things? So the science of addiction, uh, brain science, psychology, to understand the dynamics of the addictions that we face in this area, should those insights from the secular culture inform how Christians fight against, attack this sin? Short answer, yes. <laughs> Longer answer, I am so thankful for the, the aspects of wisdom that um, are offered to us today that we didn't have a generation ago. Mm. And we should thank the Lord for in his providence providing these uh, uh, insights and strategies. Do, do those complicate the issue for you as, a, as you think as a pastor and try to think theologically about this? Uh, sometimes we can wonder if, well, if this is something that's happening with the chemicals in my brain and the pathways in my brain, I, I, maybe it's not as cut and dry a sin issue as it maybe I thought it was. No, because I can read the Bible. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I don't know how it could be clearer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thankful for the insights and the strategies that are being offered to us today in new ways. That's all wonderful, but it doesn't, it's not a game changer. It doesn't actually help us get free. Now that's where the Bible addresses us at a such a profound level that it speaks to every generation and in every century and in every culture. And what the Bible says, James 5.16, therefore, now how blunt is this? How practical and doable is this? It requires no uh, scientific sophistication. It just requires honesty. James 5.16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Mm. So where are we going to get healing? Healing is more profound than insight. Healing is more profound than any strategy. How do we get healing? The same way sinful people have gotten healing mm. since time immemorial, yeah. therefore confess your sins, not just to God, to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed, James 5, 16. Mm, yeah. Do you, on the whole, do you think evangelical pastors teach about the issue of pornography enough in their churches? 
I'm not sure I would preach on it, but I would include it in my ministry paradigm in men's groups, mm. probably not on a Sunday morning. Uh, personally, I would feel like the, um, the ministry of the gospel itself was being hijacked by a sidebar issue. Mm. Um, and there might be children in the congregation. How are they supposed to understand that? Should they even be made privy to that? Mm -hmm. But in men's groups, um, Saturday morning men's groups, weekday evening men's groups, um, recovery groups, one-on-one -on -one discipleship, and so forth, all over. I would want the, the church to be honeycombed with small groups of men really pressing deeply into these very issues. That's why I wrote the book. This is a field manual for men in one-on-one -on -one relationships and in small groups to go to a whole new place of honesty, vulnerability, transparency, and healing and freedom and power mm. that they've never known before. Yeah. Well, in a, in a couple of weeks, we're hoping to, to post another interview with you that we'll, we'll be doing uh, that features questions from pastors in particular on this issue and uh, where you can offer some insights into some practical things related to doing just that, leading churches, leading their men in particular through uh, your book, but also just through this broader topic in a way that's helpful to them. Maybe one last question before we, before we go. What final word of encouragement would you offer to that guy who, uh, as we established right at the beginning, uh, is feeling stuck, mm -hmm. who feels hopeless, maybe even after this conversation feels like that that all sounds so good i wish i could believe that but but he just feels like i just don't know that i'm going to make any progress on this mm. issue oh wow great question thanks for asking it here's what i'd say i believe that jesus loves us the most tenderly at the very place of our deepest betrayal there's an accusing voice in my head that tells me he despises me mm -hmm. at that very place, that I am such a loser and such a pathetic weakling, I will never change, nothing will ever change. Um, that voice is a lie. The truth is, that is the very place in my existence where the healer is the most near, the most ready, the most accessible. But I probably won't experience that except through another brother hmm. to whom I confess my real sins and I pour it out. I put it all out there, the worst of it, right on the table with a Christian brother and I keep confessing it, we don't overcome our sins by willpower. We confess our sins to death. Hmm. If I'm living in isolation, Jesus will remain hypothetical. If I will go into brotherhood and confess my real sins and my most extreme betrayals, my, in a way I don't understand, Matt, through my brother, hmm. The, the real Jesus who's actually there will start feeling real to me. Hmm. And I will start feeling less despairing and more hopeful. 
through confession to an actual brother. Of course, I hate confession for crying out loud. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like, fun. Oh, it's like dying. I, I, this false self I've been projecting to all the guys around me that I wish were true, it dies. And Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says when a, when a, when a man confesses his realities to a Christian brother, if he'll go on confessing like that as a new MO for life, that man will never be alone again. Mm. He will never again be alone with his sin. Now his brother bears the burden of that sin with him. And that man will start to experience hope. Mm. Well, Ray, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us about uh, a very, very difficult issue, a very hard issue, but I think you've given us so much hope uh, from the gospel. Thanks, Matt. It's a privilege to be with you. That was Ray Ortland on how the gospel can free us from the bondage to porn. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.